Well, last time we studied 2 Samuel together, it's been a couple of weeks, but we were in chapter 11, which is the story of King David failing in rather spectacular fashion. It's been a couple of weeks, and some of you may not have been here, so I will uh, get us caught up quickly on the storyline that we need to know to make sense of today's passage. What happened was... David, instead of being where he ought to have been, leading his army against the Ammonites, David stayed at home with not enough to do. Um, One evening he was strolling on what would have been the flat-roofed portion of the king's palace. From that vantage point, high above the palace, but also high above Jerusalem, he could see down into some house or courtyard where he could see a woman named Bathsheba uh, performing the rather intimate task of bathing in what we were told was for a law-required ritual purity uh, bath or washing. And David liked what he saw. So he inquired as to her identity, and he learned that her name was Bathsheba and that she was the wife of someone who had been David's friend for a long, long time, long before he was ever king. A man named Uriah, who's a loyal soldier of David's. But knowing her identity and that of her husband didn't slow David's urges. He had her brought to the palace where the two of them committed adultery. That would have been bad enough. But then David got, some weeks later, a note, a message from Bathsheba, just two little Hebrew words that translate this way, I'm pregnant. And David decided that the tragedy wouldn't actually start unless people found out what he had done. And so after a lot of lying and shenanigans, the end of the story is this, David came to a point where he either had to come clean or cause the death of Uriah to cover his sin, and he sadly chose option B. He ordered a military maneuver that David knew would cause the death of his friend Uriah, and it happened. He was killed and other soldiers with him. And then David took Bathsheba into his house as yet another of his wives. He made himself out to be something of what was called a kinsman redeemer. Oh, isn't David being a nice guy taking care of that young widow? And shortly thereafter, I'll be darned, she wound up noticeably pregnant with David's child. But hey, they were married by that point. And it seemed like David got away with his sin. But the very last sentence that we read together in the book of 2 Samuel, the end of verse 11, reads this way. But the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes or in the sight of the Lord. What David missed was that it really didn't matter ultimately whose eyes he could hide his sin from because the only eyes that ultimately matter see everything. And so today we're going to pick up right there and and 
walk along as God confronts David with the sins that God knows he has sinned. We're going to read the first 15 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 12. And they read this way. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. This little lamb would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and the rich man was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, the rich man took the poor man's ewe lamb, slaughtered it, cooked it, prepared it for the man, the traveler who had come to him. Verse 5, then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as Yahweh lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, or surely he will die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. It's I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did your stuff secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel out under the sun. Verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And so with that, Nathan went to his house. Chapter 12 begins with word that the Lord has sent Nathan to David. We met Nathan, Nathan back in chapter 7, where he's called Nathan the prophet. So we know this man carries with him the, the authority, the office, the title of a prophet, but that office and that title wouldn't make this job any easier. Can you imagine, just picture this, somehow God had to let Nathan know what was up. So the Lord, however this worked, he calls to Nathan, uh, uh, Nathan, I've got a job for you. Hey, sure thing, God. What's up? What'd you have in mind? Well, here's, 
Here's what's been happening. And God had to tell Nathan what if he would have had no idea had happened. All of the sins David has sinned. The adultery, the lying, the conniving, the sneaking, the murdering. And then God says apparently to Nathan, So Nathan, I want you to go into the most powerful man in this part of the world who just murdered one of his best friends to cover up his sin. And I want you to tell him how wrong he is. To which I imagine Nathan replied, Does this job have sick leave? Because I'm suddenly not feeling so good. God often calls his servants to very difficult work. But he empowers them to do it as he does here. Nathan goes. And when he gets to David, he starts by telling David a parable, which is unusual in the Old Testament. Very few parables in the Old Testament. And a parable is a made-up story that's used to prove a real point. And what's interesting about this parable in this situation is that David doesn't know it's a parable. In, in ancient governments like David's, there was no separation of powers. David is the chief executive. He's also the Supreme Court. So when, when David listens to this story of the rich man and the poor man, David thinks he's hearing a court case and he's listening with his judicial ears on. And so Nathan starts in telling a story about this poor man that if this was real life, it can seem a little weird to us. He's only got one sheep and his relationship with his sheep seems a little off, honestly. But the point is, because this poor man only has one sheep, scarcity makes things valuable, right? Because he's only got one sheep, it's very precious to him. That's why he treats it like part of the family. See, the rich man, he's got countless flocks and herds. There's no way an individual head from his flocks and herds could be as valuable as that one ewe lamb was to the poor man. That's, that's the point. In sort of act two of the parable, the rich man receives a visitor. And in the, the rules of hospitality of that day, the rich man would have been required to put out a meal uh, fitting of his household. Um, but the rich man, he doesn't want to use one of his sheep or goats or cattle. And he goes and steals the, the one sheep the poor man had, kills it, and uses the poor man's sheep to make himself look like Mr. Hospitality. It's a real jerk move. Now, I assume at this point in the story, this is when Nathan wants to ask David, what do you think should be done to a guy like that? But he doesn't even get the chance. Because David interrupts Nathan. David jumps in, doesn't give Nathan a chance to finish talking, to ask him what he thinks. David just, just jumps in with anger. And, and, and really goes over the top with what he thinks should happen to such a guy. David's angry, 
furious, angry response reminds me, there's a line in Hamlet by Shakespeare uh, where a woman says of another woman, she doth protest too much. Uh, I'm not a big Shakespeare guy, but there's so much genius in that little line because here's an ugly part of human nature. When we know we are guilty in some area, we, teen, we, we tend to overcook our denials a bit. We tend to overdo our reactions a bit. And that's what David does. See, this part in verse 6, when, when, when David says down here that the, the rich man should make restitution fourfold, he stole one sheep, he should give back four, the original audience would hear that and go, that's right out of the law. Right, we could go to Exodus, we could go to Deuteronomy. That's God's ordained punishment for theft. Fourfold restitution. But see, that's not enough for David. David says, this guy deserves to die. And you really could translate this, understand this as, surely this man, is, as the Lord lives, this guy is going to be put to death. Should we give the death penalty for people who steal one sheep? Let me ask you another question. Is God just? Is God just? That's not a trick question. I don't want to answer because I think... God is just, right? You know what God said the punishment in Israel was supposed to be for stealing one sheep? You pay back four sheep. But see, David, because he's masking here, David, because in his heart and other, other places where he wrote, we can tell he, that his guilt is pressing on him. He wants to be super, uber righteous. You know, for some people, they would say fourfold restitution would be enough. I think we ought to kill this guy. That's how righteous I am. Does that make David more righteous and more just than God? No. But it's something we often do. See, when I get into that, I'm guilty as anyone. When we get into that, you know what we ought to do with people like that? We ought to round them up, right? Rope from the tallest tree. Anytime we know we are unrighteous in some given area, we try to mask that by being super morally righteous. What we think is super morally righteous in another area, which actually just comes out as more unrighteousness. It's just a weird kind we don't see. We're blind to. David's compensating. He's masking. The irony here is, David's sins actually do require the death penalty according to the law. The law that elsewhere David said he loves. He said he loved the law so much it tastes like honey in my mouth when I read it. And the law he loved so much would require multiple death sentences for David. One for the adultery and one for Uriah and one for every other soldier he caused the death of.
I think so far this has gone better than Nathan anticipated. David couldn't have walked into the trap any harder. By verse 7, Nathan is finally ready to reveal that he's actually come to confront David in David's sin. Nathan says to David first, you are the man. This is not you the man, right? This is a different sort of you are the man. What, what Nathan means here is, my friend, if you think a guy who stole a sheep because he had no compassion, to try to make himself look good, look hospitable, if you think someone like that deserves death, what does that say about you? And then Nathan just tells David, God has seen, God has seen it all, buddy. He starts by God gives David through Nathan the after all I've done for you treatment. I mean, it's not like God has been holding out on David, right? God lists some things he has done. Like, I made you king. I kept you alive long enough for you to become king. I gave you all of Saul's stuff. For the first time we learned, God even allowed David to take Saul's harem. I gave you all that stuff because I took it away from that guy who wouldn't pursue after my heart. I gave all that stuff to you. You're acting more like Saul now. He even says, I would have given you more if you'd have asked for it. After all I've done for, for you, God says, I deserve better from you. Next, God asks David through Nathan a very important question that I would highlight in my Bible if I were you. Why? Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? First, make no mistake, what David has done amounts to hating the word of the Lord. You think David knew that adultery and murder were wrong? Or do you think he thought those were a gray area? David knew what God expected. But he preferred wickedness, sin, to what God said is good. That amounts to hating the word of the Lord. What God wants to know is, why? Why would you do something like that? What's the answer to that question? Why would David hate the word of the Lord and love what God said is wicked? The same reason I do. David believed the lie that somehow sin will deliver better for me than obedience will ultimately. Isn't that the case with all sin? I mean, I know what God says, but think of what I'll miss out on. Think of what I could have. Think of what life could be like. My sin will out-deliver obedience. That's why. And then God just says plainly what he has seen. God says, you killed Uriah the Hittite 
You might have used the sword of the sons of the Ammonites to kill him, but that sword just as well have been in your hand. You took his wife and you killed your friend. In verses 10 through 12, God outlines some consequences that are going to result from David's sins. You get the feeling God's really angry with David. You should, because he is. Basically, what God tells David here is you are going to reap what you have sown. Here's where we see that. God just told David, you killed Uriah with the sword. So now God says, so now the sword is never going to depart from your house. You wanted to use violence to try to solve your problems. You have sown violence. You are going to reap violence. Man, the rest of the 12 chapters we have left in 2 Samuel are not fun. David's family is a violently infighting wreck. This is the turning point in David's life because of all the consequences that come back to his sin. First one, you've sown the sword. You're going to reap the sword. Second, God said, I saw you take the wife of someone close to you. I'm going to let someone close to you take your wives. That's going to wind up being his own son who will publicly Do exactly what you are imagining right now. It's a power play when his son tries to set himself up as king. God says, what you have done in secret, I'll make sure gets done openly. That's what under the sun means, exposed. In verse 13, David finally responds. And he just says this, I have sinned against the Lord. Here's where David is different from King Saul. David has acted just like King Saul for a chapter and a half now. Um, King Saul was always someone who just wanted what he wanted and didn't really care what God said. That's how David's been behaving. But when Saul was confronted with Saul's sin, he always denied his sin Uh, use projection, blame someone else, rationalization. Here's why it really couldn't be helped in this situation. David does none of that. He just says, you are right. I have sinned against the Lord. And then the last verse and a half can be really puzzling. Read these with me again. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because of this deed, you have, you have given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to talk bad about God. The child that is born to you is going to die. Wait, what? Do you hear what God just said right there? According to God's revealed law, who deserves to die in this story? David, multiple times over. David confesses, and God says, okay, now you won't die, at least not for that. But God says, your tiny little infant newborn son, 
He's going to die because of your sin. Does that seem fair? What'd the baby do? None of this was his fault. Why does David get to live and the baby gets to die? And God is the one who does it. We'll chew on that for a minute. We've come to the end of, an, of yet another uncomfortable passage. It's time to see, see what we can glean, see what we can learn. By and large, I think there are two major lessons for us in these 14 or 15 verses. One lesson is very easy to see. The other one is a little more hidden, but just as, if not more, important. We'll start with the obvious one first. This passage screams this lesson out. Uh, The dangers of sin are very severe. This really is, as I said a second ago, the turning point of David's reign as king, the turning point of the whole monarchy in Israel. Things are never going to be the same again because of decisions David made. That is true about sin. There are sins where sometimes after I have chosen to sin a given sin, things will never be the same again. Now, the scary part is we don't even know which sins those are. We cannot control the consequences of sin. We feel like we can but we just can't. Now David did confess. David does, as we'll see moving forward, David does repent. But the consequences don't go away. Not the earthly consequences. Uh, There's an Irish theologian who is named Alec Motier. Here's what he wrote about repentance and confession from the David story. He said repentance, and we could add confession, is like fetching a stone, fetching back a stone one has just thrown into a pool. The stone can be retrieved, but the ripples go on spreading. We're going to talk next week about about confession and repentance and why they are so important. And they are important but they don't erase all the consequences of sin. Our prisons have lots and lots of repentant people in them who are going to remain in prison. It's a consequence. There, we, we can't unsin our sin. And it's dangerous. That's... That's the lesson here. David thought, boy, my, just, I, I know what God says, but I'm pretty sure my life would be more awesome if I take Bathsheba. Then, when she's pregnant, well, I'm pretty sure my, 
my, my life won't be as bad if I do whatever it takes to, to, to keep people from knowing that I took Bathsheba before she was my wife. I'm pretty sure my life will be better through those paths. How's that working out for him at this point in his life? Not great. Sin always, it overpromises and it underdelivers. Always. And once that stone of sin is thrown, we cannot control the ripple effects it creates in our lives. That's the first lesson that I think this passage teaches us. But there's another one that I think is more hidden. I didn't know it was even in here until I studied for this. Excuse me. That up, or that's going to be distracting. The other one is, is this. I think more than anything, this passage is actually about the amazing grace of God. The dangers of sin are severe, but two, the grace of God is amazing. Let's see if we can find, as we look back through this passage, God's grace peeking through the surface of sin and its consequences. It starts earlier than you might think. It starts from the first sentence in the chapter, which says this, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. That line right there is bubbling over with the grace of God. By the time this chapter opens, Bathsheba has given birth to David's son. So it's been at least, give or take, nine months since David's sin started, right? So David has been unrepentantly guilty for most of a year. And God has given him plenty of time to come clean to bring that to me, to make a better decision. What does David deserve from God at this point? You know what David deserves? Exactly what King Saul got. The Romans 2 treatment. Oh, you think your sin, walking in sin, will be better than walking with me. Well, have at it, big boy, because I'm out of here. You chose that instead of me. I'm just giving you what you wanted. That's what David deserves, but that's not what God will do. God sends Nathan to David, and that is all grace. I didn't say it'd be comfortable, but it's grace. Anytime our loving Heavenly Father puts pressure on us because of our sin, the, the conviction we feel in our hearts, that feeling where we feel like other people are judging me. Oh, they're judging me. Hey, that ain't them. That is God. Or if God sends someone with the courage that it takes to come sit down and confront you in your sin. That is all grace. Because the worst thing God could do is just turn you over to it. 
Now, God doesn't, God doesn't sugarcoat David's sin because grace doesn't do that. May it never be. But grace goes after a sinner. So, first place we see grace is that God pursues David at all. He sends Nathan to confront. Then, the manner in which God confronts David is gracious also. If you were God, and we're all glad you're not, but if you were God, how would you have wanted to go confront David? You know exactly. You don't even have to be God. Let's just pretend you, someone close to you, you know exactly what they have done. It's been 10 months, nine months, and they're still pretending like it didn't happen, and you've got all the evidence you need, and it is time. I'm going to go confront that person. How, as you imagine that scenario, how's it go down? We want to lead with, you are the man. Here's what I got on you. Here's why you're a dirtbag. You are awful. Right? You know how God does it? He sends, he sends Nathan in there to tell David a story. What's the purpose of the story? Because God just wants David to see his sin from God's perspective. So he sort of makes it about someone else. So that David can see it. It takes away his defense mechanisms. You know why? Because you know, through this confrontation in David's sin and his lack of repentance, do you know what God wants more than anything in this whole story? David. He still wants David. And God knows for him to be cool with David, David needs to confess and to repent so he confronts David in a way which is more likely to lead to David's confession and repentance. God doesn't just walk in there because I got some things to get off my chest and this is going to be feel really good and I'm going to feel so superior and make you feel so lousy and that's actually my purpose. No. What he wants is David to pursue after his heart again so he confronts him in a way which is more likely to lead to heart change in David. There's a way to stand up for what is right. There is a way to confront that is more about me as the confronter, making myself feel good and superior and angry and all that stuff. Then there's a way to confront which actually makes it more likely that a sinner repents and they're not the same thing. Maybe the most obvious place to see the amazing grace of God in this passage comes in verse 13 where David finally confesses. All he says is, I've sinned against the Lord. And immediately God through Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Don't throw that away. On this side of the cross, we know, because Jesus told us, all sins shall be forgiven you. Never lose the awe of what that means for us. But under the the covenant that David lived, David deserved death. And David didn't go to the sanctuary. He didn't offer any sacrifices. There weren't any sacrifices for his sins anyway. Anyway, 
He didn't do anything to deserve this. That's what grace and mercy mean. Right? You cannot be gracious. You cannot be merciful towards someone who deserves it. You know that? You won't die. David is the man, but God is God. And you know what that means in God's own words? That God is God. God is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains love toward thousands. He forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. And then finally, there's one more way I think this passage points to the amazing grace of God. And it's in this confusing part at the end where Nathan says, hey, God's not going to kill you for that, but your son's going to die. There's no possible way for us to read that without saying that is so, I would say, unfair. That is so unfair. What did that baby do? David, you're telling me David gets to go scot-free and the son of David dies in his place? I think if we read that for centuries, for centuries, I think Israel read that. What do you mean, God, that David got to go free and the son of David is going to die because of David's sin in David's place? And I think God would want to say, just you wait. Just you wait. Because that, that exact scenario is the only hope any of us have. Because David has already been promised a descendant, the one called the son of David. His name was Jesus, and he absolutely died because of David's sin in David's place, the death David deserved to die. This, this first son born to Bathsheba is just sort of like the preview. And you see, I think the best thing, really, what we just have to do with this passage is first we have to get to the place where we don't shake our heads so hard at David. We have to get to the place where we can say of ourselves, I am that man. I am the one. I am the one who wasn't satisfied with what I had and with obedience, but thought I could use sin to give me more. You are the man, and so am I. And we have to answer this question. Who, who among us could not have God ask us this question? Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Why? Why do you do that? You ever ask yourself that? Why do I do this? And once we get there, I am the man. Why do I do these things? Oh yeah, because I think my sin will give me more than obedience. And we're left right where David was. I have sinned against the Lord. And when we get there, 
God can say to us, listen, you will not die because the son of David will die in your place. It really is the only hope we have. And it's, it's enough. Now listen, the dangers of sin will still be severe. You still can't unsin your sin. And you can't control its consequences. This passage screams at us, don't go in there. It's like the horror movie, right? Where you know, like, don't go down there. The monster's down there. Listen, sin is the monster and it's still down there. And it hurts and it kills and its ripples affect generations. But the grace of God will overcome it in the end. Let's pray. Our Father, here we are. We are all the man. We uh, are a collection of folks who have decided that sin can outdeliver obedience. And sometimes that is like moral sin, um, sexual sin, and uh, uh, stealing and lying and cheating. Sometimes it's more the other side of, you know, the masking, the, the uber-righteous, the, uh, the, the, the wanting to just appear and feel better when really what we need to just do is just say, God, I am the man. I have asked my sin to deliver what only obedience and your grace and your blessing uh, can deliver. God, we're so grateful that your grace pursues us. Some of us here today, you you are pursuing us through this study, through this passage, through this sermon. This is you again confronting us. How long? How long before you admit I am the man, I have sinned against the Lord? Thank you that you will walk with us through the ripples that continue. And thank you that the son of David has already paid the eternal consequences each of our sins deserve. Your grace really is amazing. We love you, Lord. Uh, And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up and we will finish our time.